0: From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, I'm joined by Harvard professors Steve Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt, co-authors of How Democracies Die. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Public morality. The title of Steve Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt's new must-read, How Democracies Die, has the makings of a futuristic novel that picks up where George Orwell's 1984 left off. Unfortunately, it is not a novel, but rather a dispassionate clarion call pointing to some alarming trends in the world's oldest democracy. While it is easy to take American democracy for granted, perhaps it is time we collectively ask, What leads to the ultimate demise of democratic forms of governing? Levisky and Ziblatt offer historical models and draw on some haunting parallels to America's current situation. Both serve as government professors at Harvard University, and I'm honored to have them on The Public Morality. Stephen Levisky, Daniel Ziblatt, welcome to The Public Morality. Spend some time um, talking about the Democratic small-D guardrails that have been imposed in myriad ways to uh, protect our democracy, including the Electoral College, which, I just might add, paradoxically, was the reason that Donald Trump became the 45th
1: president. Right. Yeah. I don't think, you know, I I, would—I'm not sure if we would call the Electoral College a Democratic guardrail. I mean, it clearly was— invented, you know, by the founders. Least, the I was just saying initial,
0: at least initially, but yes, yes.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah, you know, it's certainly a guardrail in some ways trying to constrain, you know, popular will and so on. You know, I think, you know, today we have a uh, system of checks and balances in mean, the U.S. famously its constitution divides power among different branches of government, federal system. These are ways of you know, the, the American system was really designed to disperse power. Um, and so, you know, the democratic part of that is that, you know, power, this prevents or, you know, in principle is supposed to prevent the concentration of power. And so our checks and balances have tended to work really well, I would say for the most part. I mean, there's obviously, um, notable exceptions throughout history, Nixon, uh, you know, being the most recent one in our kind of lifetimes. Uh, but you know, today the courts, um, social institutions like the, the media, um, Uh, Congress has served as a check on executive power in principle, and that's what it's designed to do. And one of the things that we've been worried about is that some of these institutions are, you know, get good grades for their performance uh, since the election of President Trump and others less so. Um, And I think, you know, we're we're a bit worried about Congress and Congress's willingness to serve its guard dog function um, to constrain power. And that's, you know, there's some signs that that Congress is not living up to what it's supposed to, to be doing. And so that makes us worried.
0: You know, one of the things that, that it seems to me, uh, my words, not yours, that we've always had partisan politics. We've always had, you know, like Jefferson had his newspapers, Hamilton had his newspapers. But there seems to be, and maybe the the, the rate of information that we receive um, and the speed in which we receive it, a hyper-partisanship that is unique to American democracy. I wonder how you how you gentlemen saw that.
2: I don't know about unique. Um, and uh, and we we've had periods of really hyper and really dangerous hyper partisanship before. You mentioned the period just now, which is the seventeen late seventeen eighties, seventeen nineties, early eighteen hundreds. The Federalists and the uh, and the the early Jeffersonian Republicans despised one another. They they saw each other as uh, as seditious, as traitors who were trying to undermine the new republic. The polarization between those two parties um, was uh, probably more severe than the partisan differences we, we face today. And the, those two parties tried to ruin one another. They played what we call uh, an extreme form of, of constitutional hardball, trying to to, to use the, the, the rules of the game to essentially permanently de- defeat the other party. Um, we fell into a period, obviously, of intense Partisan conflict prior to the Civil War and our democracy, or, or our, it was not a fully democratic system, but our, our republic fell apart obviously in the 1860s. So we've had periods of severe and damaging polarization before. Um, but this is certainly the first, the, the, the most polarized our parties have been um, in over a century and maybe since the end of Reconstruction.
1: And I would also just
2: yeah. add, go. I'm sorry. Go, go, right here.
1: go ahead. Oh no, no. I mean, I was just. I would, yeah, I was just going to say. You know that the causes of a polariz- When you look around the world, one of the things that makes us nervous is that polarization does. You know, polarization is in some sense a good thing. There's, it's good to have healthy competition between parties. But when you when when, when a country faces extreme polarization. Um, and we could sort of talk more about what exactly we mean by that. We lay that out more in the book. This is very damaging for democracy. If you look around the world, the breakdown of the democracies in the world is often preceded by incre- incredibly intense, deep animosities among parties. You know, and it takes different forms in different countries for different reasons. But it has this manifestation of parties, people, politicians treating each other as if the other side, uh, even though it may be playing by the rules, has no right to. Be in power, and so when when politicians begin to act that way, and when citizens act that way, kind of driving the politicians, then this this can be dangerous. You know, that's absolutely what- right. I mean, parties can uh, can disagree
2: with it, with one another. Parties can even dislike one another. But when the parties view one another as enemies, as beyond the pale, and view the victory of the other side as something that's intolerable, unacceptable, democracy is in danger.
0: And, and and to that and to that end, I know you you, you cite this in the book, but uh, would it be fair to say that Reconstruction was authoritarian form of rule for for a period of time?
2: Sure, uh, and the failure of Reconstruction gave gave rise to another authoritarian form of rule. Now, I happen to think that 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 many of the key goals of Reconstruction reconstruct Reconstruction excuse me were not only laudable but importantly democratic. I mean, Reconstruction aimed to bring about racial equality and bring, and bring about full democratic rights, at least for all men, which would have made the United States for the first time uh, a democracy. Um, so the goals were, were, were fundamentally democratic, but to impose it on the South required essentially several years of outright military rule. Uh, you know, the, the federal government imposed dictatorships on, on the states. Now, when, when, when Reconstruction was dismantled and abandoned, um, the, the, the Democratic Party then took this extraordinarily undemocratic measure of stripping away voting rights of African Americans and established almost a century of single-party authoritarian rule in nearly a dozen states in the South. So both Reconstruction, Reconstruction had authoritarian elements, but the failure
1: of Reconstruction had long-term authoritarian consequences. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that it seems to me the most important fact about Reconstruction was not that it was authoritarian, but that it was really an effort to democratize the, the South and the United States as a whole, you know, and throughout history, um, you know, if you think of post-war Germany, you know, democracies often come at the end of a gun. And so, you know, clearly that those early, you know, in that sense, there there's a way in which coercion was being used to try to impose democracy, Um but I think the the kind of you know this was a democratic experiment that essentially was defeated um, and the post reconstruction period was one in which democracy was clearly dismantled
0: and one of the areas um, the reason I raised that was in a, in, a, in American history it seems to me there is or just the american narrative in general there there, there is the the copycat sort of aspect, and I think democracy is not immune to that i mean um Republicans have long been um, uh, recent in recent in recent history the the ones who have uh, been blamed for shutting down the government and so now that that so now this whole shutting down the government has become weaponized and so we we, we see both parties engaging in it and I wonder um, if, if the recent shutdown is sort of reflective of some of the concerns that you have for the destruction of of our democracy.
2: Absolutely, uh, we are very very concerned about this effect this tit-for-tat dynamic that you that you point to. I mean I, in, in our view, the process of norm erosion began uh, easiest to identify it in the early 1990s with, uh, with the Gingrich Revolution. Gingrich is, is really sort of gave us the modern government shutdown in the 1990s. I think that the partisan impeachment of Bill Clinton was another example of abandoning norms of, of, of self-restraint or what we call forbearance. And so this we think, Began with the radicalization of the Republican Party, but there's no question that it has uh, that this is sort of tit for tat process in which Democrats come under pressure to respond uh, in the same manner. They come under pressure from their from their allies, from their constituents, to not be the sucker, to not be bullied uh, by the Republicans. And the shutdown is an example of that. Um, I think that if uh, there, there's talk. In in some progressive circles, for example, if if the Democrats win control of the Senate, that Democrats might do to Trump what the Republican Party did to President Obama, which is deny him the right to fill a Supreme Court vacancy should one emerge. Um, We have seen this movie before in Europe, in Latin America, and when um, when you get this sort of spiraling, escalating, tit-for-tat, of what we call constitutional hardball, the end result is, is rarely good. It rarely ends well.
1: Great, yeah. You know, and I, w- I would add, to, I would add to that that you know, you know, we're we're, we're nervous about how things are unfolding. Um, and, and in our book, we make the case for uh, norm reinforcing behavior for Democrats. You know, as, as Steve said, we think this really began on the Republican side. Um, but that said, you know, it's it's a you face a tough set of dilemmas. You know, you think of the government shutdown. You know, if you you know passionately believe in you know defending the uh, the dreamers and think this is an important issue and a kind of fundamental issue, then there's really you know when people say, well, we need to shut down the government in order to achieve this, you know, that, that's a that's a compelling argument. I mean, you know, if you really genu- if you believe this is worth. Abandoning kind of normal democratic procedures for or normal normal constitutional procedures, so you know the question is then you know under under you know what's what are the outer limits of forbearance when do you when do you give up forbearance it's It's certainly a tricky issue yeah. our point is simply to highlight this as a potential cost i mean, I think the way that I sense debate going i mean I, you know I've heard kind of hard boiled uh politicos saying you know look at the dilemma and the government shutdown is if we hold- if we shut down the government too long, we may You know, conservative Democrats are going to get punished back in their home states, but we, but on the other hand, we really believe in in trying to promote, protect uh, the Dreamers, and that's the calculation. We have to weigh those two things, and we're just we want to throw a third variable into the calculation, into the moral calculation, which is well, let's think about also what the damage is, the long run damage to the political system, and so that's that's one more important factor to be considered when when politicians and voters are thinking about these sorts of decisions.
0: You know, I, I'm, I'm uh, guessing, I'm sure you've heard this comment already, that uh, many Americans would, would offer, um, at least reflexively, that no single American, I'm speaking specifically of President Trump now, could, des- could destroy the world's oldest democracy and, and, and isn't our democracy safe as long as the Constitution remains in place? How, how do you gentlemen respond to that observation?
2: We're not quite so uh, confident, um, having having looked at the performance of our own constitution over time and the performance of other constitutions. In fact, much of my part of the world, Latin America, borrowed almost word for word the U.S. Constitution at the time of Latin American independence in the early 19th century. The constitution alone is is a pretty brilliant document, but it's not enough to safeguard a democracy. And our system of checks and balances, as Daniel mentioned a few minutes ago, by itself is not enough. Our system of of constitutional checks and balances works well when it's reinforced by these unwritten rules of mutual toleration and forbearance. Without those norms, even our brilliantly designed Constitution can go awry. And uh, it's true. It's true that a single leader can't destroy a democracy but what we're arguing is that the problems facing our democracy um, run deeper than Trump Trump is a problem Trump is is not committed to to, to democratic norms so he's somebody that all concerned citizens should uh, be vigilant about and and should worry about but the problems run deeper than that it's unfortunately it's not just one man who poses a challenge to our democracy it's it's a very very intense polarization that's beginning to unravel our democratic norms.
0: Dan, you want to add anything to that?
1: Yeah. So, you know, so what, what happens every few weeks is, is, you know, the the president will speak in a kind of more moderate tone and people will say, ah, he's acting presidential, you know, so the state of the union address is coming up and, you know, by some accounts it's going to kind of push a kind of more modest and moderate line. And, you know, so there's two points about that. Number one, you know, there's lots of, you know, that that's this week. We'll see what's happened next. Let's see what happens next week. But to, to kind of uh, emphasize Steve's point, you know, the, the concern is less about a single leader and more about uh, deeper dynamics in the political system. So, you know, that can maybe reassure us, and it should. But on the other hand, you know, we have to keep our eye on the ball of other things that are going on in our political system, often at the state level, as well as the na- national dysfunction of, of our national political institutions as well.
0: You know, I want to bring the conversation back to, to, to those actual guardrails that, that, that um, you, you all have written so persuasively about that are in some jeopardy. And since we're uh, doing the show, The Public Rally from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, you cite uh, the Tar Heel State uh, mm-hmm. as being emblematic of what politics without guardrails looks like. And I wonder if you could expand on that.
1: Uh yeah, well, you know, we um we you know, we, we in our in our last chapter we kinda lay out future scenarios for the United States and so we um we looked at uh, North Carolina and realized that North Carolina is an interesting state because in many ways it's you know, ha- has some similarities. It's a kind of microcosm at some level of the United States in the sense that it's a purple state. It's a state that um has become more democratic in recent years, but there's you know, sharply fractured uh, electorate, Um, and so what we've seen, uh, you know, in the last couple of years in the governor's race and and so on and after, immediately afterwards, is the use of institutions as weapons, and you kind of have a kind of, and what we've described as constitutional hardball is really on display, um, where, you know, the electoral efforts to redraw the electoral map um, and change the rules of the game after a new governor has been elected, this is really pushing it right up to the edge. And so that the heightened sort of tenor of politics um, in which so much seems to be at stake for both sides um, means that the institutions become no longer the rules of the game, but part of the game. And Once the institutions are part of the game, everything is up in the air. And so that's, you know, in some ways we, we kind of look to North Carolina to see what's happening in North Carolina, because we think this is, you know, is instructive about what's happening in our national politics as well.
0: Uh, Steve, anything that?
2: Yeah. That's a classic case of what we call politics without guardrails. That when we if we let our democratic norms continue to erode that we'll get this sort of no holes barred, anything goes, partisan fight to the death that we've seen at least intermittently in North Carolina in recent years. And and uh to to build on Daniel's point, what the, the parallel that we see is that in North Carolina you have an increasingly diverse society. And the Republican Party that largely represents white Christians, white Protestants, that feels itself a, a majority that's about to lose its majority, or a majority in decline. And that tends to be radicalizing. That tends to lead to um, to fairly uh, extremist behavior. Um, and we worry that, that we're going to continue to see that at a national level.
0: Now, now to that end, um, um, how much does I mean you certainly mentioned you know the role of Congress um, or lack thereof uh, and, and not being a guardrail but but how much does the public ap- apathy and nihilism play into your observations
2: I don't know about nihilism but apathy certainly doesn't doesn't help I mean it uh, our democracy is clearly better off in a number of ways if uh, when everybody votes or when the vast majority of the electorate at least votes uh, and, and is aware of what's going on in politics. The level of, uh, of, of voting participation and awareness is relatively low well in the United States. And one of the problematic dimensions of that is that those who do vote and those who are aware tend to be at the political extremes. We, there are a lot of moderates out there who simply are not um, involved in politics and are not going out to vote on Election Day. Uh, And that is one of the things, not the only thing, but it's one of the things that is contributing to our our polarization.
1: Yeah, and and another note on that, I mean, it's, you know, in some ways it's easy to blame citizens for just not going out to vote. And I'm sure there's some citizens who deserve the the blame for not going out to vote. But on the other hand, I think an important uh, role is played by political parties as well as civil society organizations, Labor unions, church institutions, you know, all, and, and organizations that link voters to politics, and the way that most people t- turn out to vote is when they're members of groups. I mean, isolated individuals who are disconnected from from their communities are less likely to be engaged in politics. And so, at some level, the task is is not just about you know, in, in telling individuals to go out to vote, but you know, creating a, a kind of robust civil society in which. Uh, in which that's more likely to happen. You know, and there are signs that that's happening. I mean, in many ways, the the Women's March, I think, has been one indicator of this, um, you know, and that the idea that lots of people are kind of beating their political start and, and more women are considering to run for Congress this year as a result of participation in this act- activism. So in some ways, that's and it, and it's kind of an unintended side effect, perhaps, of activism is it it uh, in addition to the kind of individual protests you know and and events that take place having citizens politicize in those kinds of moments and getting involved in politics is an important way to kind of address that that question of apathy that you're talking about
0: if you're just joining us I'm speaking with professors Steve Levisky and Daniel Ziblatt of Harvard University they are co-authors of How Democracies Die um you know one of the things I wanted to should have touched on it earlier, but I think this is a good segue to talk about it. Is really what prompted you, uh, the two of you, to to engage in this project? I mean, I, I know certainly that the election of Donald Trump was a piece of it, but you, but you also mentioned the problem that you write about is much larger than the 2016 election results.
1: Yeah, well, so Steve and I are colleagues; we teach together, and research on similar topics and talk a lot about our research, I've tended to focus on European politics from the 19th century to the present. So kind of my historical bent looked looked at the collapse of democracies and interwar Europe and in different points in time. Steve studied Latin America and other parts of the developing world and looked at great democracies in crisis and authoritarianism in other countries. And we, you know, we saw these kind of echoes in our election, and that's what really got us to talk about these things. Um, And and the idea was really to draw, you know, when we look at, in some ways, I think citizens and, you know, consumers of news in the U.S. are faced with, you know, especially nowadays with social media and 24-hour news are faced with a barrage of headlines and breaking news alerts. And it's, you know, just this afternoon, there's one, you know, the FBI and so many of the FBI is retiring. And so, you know, it's, you know, treated as if this is a crisis, you know, maybe, who knows. But the point is. You know it's hard to kind of distinguish what's important and what's not important, and we felt that drawing upon our experience of having looked at other countries that have faced democratic crises and succumbed to them, and other countries that have faced democratic crises and overcome them, that we could draw some lessons from those other countries' experiences to help us, you know, place what's happening in the United States into context, and so to to kind of provide a baseline of comparison against which we could assess how different the U.S. is or how similar it is, and just having that frame of reference, I think, you know, we hope is useful for re- readers and useful for, for U.S. citizens.
0: S- Steve, anything?
1: Yeah, if I
2: could just add, um, I think one thing that studying uh, democracy in other countries makes clear is that the United States is not, uh, it's in many ways an unusual country, and it's a it's an historically... Uh, It's got the oldest, most successful constitution in the world, in many ways been a very successful democracy. Um, But it's not exceptional, and it's not unique, and it certainly is not immune to the kinds of crises that face other countries. So one thing we both worry about a lot is that Americans, and and I would say I would include myself in this, have long taken American democracy for granted. We consider it uh, an immovable object, something that is indestructible. Uh, And that's simply not true. American democracy remains very strong. Its institutions are strong. It very likely will survive the Trump presidency. But we need at least to be able to recognize the warning signs. We need to be able to at least know something about what's gotten other democracies in trouble and what democracies elsewhere have done to resolve these problems and to avoid sliding into crisis. If we just sort of blissfully uh, go on whistling and 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 believing that our democracy is somehow immune because of the air or the water or the culture or the constitution um it, it could be we 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 could be in trouble
0: well i think you make a great point, given that um when you think about de Tocqueville originating American exceptionalism and how de Tocqueville used that phrase and how it 's been used in the public discourse are not exactly the same thing
2: right
1: <laughs> um yeah that 's right. Uh, yeah, so you know, I think I think Steve's reference before of the post Reconstruction South, um, you know, one of the things, one of you know, you know, highlights that you know we, the U.S. has faced these kinds of troubles before, and 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 so you know, this is something that, in fact, you know, if you look at the kind of way, the unfolding nature of these reforms, and we kind of document this in the book, um, in which voting rights were restricted often under the label of neutral sounding kinds of reforms that were, were put, you know, put under the guise of cleaning up the vote when in fact they were simply disenfranchising voters. This is something that one sees in democracies today, you know, and, and you know, you, slightly different form, but, you know, this kind of this strategy of using neutral language to roll back democracy is something that's happened in the U.S., it's something that's happened in other countries, and again, it's, you know, so it's something that, again, makes the U.S. less unique than we might sometimes think.
0: Um, with the time we have left, what I'd like to do, um, and, we, and we can start with uh, Daniel on this. Uh, I want to take um, the, the the four indicators of authoritarian uh, behavior that you, that, you, that you cite in the book, and I'll start with number one, and, and um, Daniel, you can start. Then now, then number two, go to Stephen, and have you just sort of expound on those, if you would. Okay. So the first one. Yes. Is, so oh, the first yeah, one is um, rejection or. Weak commitment uh, to democratic traditions.
1: Not tradition, yeah, rules. Uh, yeah, democratic rules of the game. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, these are these what, what we're about to go through here. These are indicators. we, we draw drawn some other research from a great political scientist, Juan Linz, who lived through the interwar crises of democracy, the Spanish uh, political scientist who lived in Weimar Germany during the Spanish Civil War. And what he did is he kind of came up with these indicators that we've elaborated, which uh, – Tell us what to look for in a candidate when they're running for office or a politician before they come into office. And, you know, really mostly in their rhetoric uh, that are signs that somebody once in power might be a danger. And so, that this first one you've mentioned, rejection of the Democratic rules of the game, I mean, this includes things such as you the Constitution, they talk, express a willingness to violate it. Do they, uh, you know, seek to use unconstitutional means to come to power? Do they say, you know, we should have a military coup and so on? You know, we haven't had a politician do that in the United States. But, you know, we have had a politician, a presidential candidate, undermine the legitimacy of elections by refusing to accept the, the results of an election. I mean, there is there is a threat in this in any case. Um, and this is something that is a, really a hallmark of democracy that you... You know, one of the def- definitions of democracy is political science sometimes it uses democracy is a system of rule in which one side loses. You know, if, if one side's not willing to lose, then it's hard to ha- let the democratic game continue. And so this is this last one is something that we really often see electoral authoritarians um, violate, you know, threatening to not accept the result of election. And then calling into question the legitimacy of elections, even when by all objective measures, they are free and fair elections.
0: Well, that sort of ties into number two, which is denial of legitimacy of political opponents. We haven't seen that in 2016, did we?
1: Yeah. So they, you know, so that here, you know, the question is: Do you accuse? Do politicians accuse their rivals? So this is, these are these are kind of indicators for uh, the behavior of politicians. Do politicians accuse their rivals of being criminals, baselessly? Uh, do they uh, accuse their rivals of being existential threats to the? Political system without any evidence, or do they say that their, you know, and their political rivals are, you know, criminals that should be locked up? Uh, you know, normally this would be way beyond the pale. You know, we've had politicians make this use this kind of language throughout American history, but never in a presidential campaign in the 20th century has a candidate of a major political party accused the opposition party of being. Uh, the candidate of being a criminal that deserves to be locked up. May I chime in for just one moment? What we had in 2016. I'm
0: going to follow up with something though, because you, you you talked about the campaign there, and it just occurred to me. Would that also include governing? In that, and I don't mean to be partisan here, but the, but but the but the historical facts are the historical facts. That uh, you mentioned the Gingrich Revolution. There was a sense. Emanating from the Republican side of the ledger, that Clinton was not a legitimate president, and you had the similar when Barack Obama became president. So, would you include that behavior as well in number two?
2: Yeah. Well, um, well, I mean, th- again, as Daniel said, this particular um, four indicators is meant to help us identify candidates who are not fully committed to democracy before we elect them, before they come to power. So, our focus with this is specifically candidate. But absolutely, we argue uh, in the book that the Republican Party began to, to lose its commitment to, the, to norms of, of, of toleration and, and forbearance in the 90s. And I think you're right. There were, there were hints of this in the Gingrich opposition to Clinton, but it was very strong and very evident, in our view, during uh, when Obama ran for president in 2008, And during his presidency there, for the first time, you see major Republican figures from Rudy Giuliani to Newt Gingrich to Sarah Palin to Mike Huckabee to Donald Trump declaring that Obama doesn't love America, that he's anti-American, that he's un-American. And in the case of the birthers, that he truly is not an American citizen and therefore is not the legitimate president. All of that, in our view, is, is, yes, the denial of the legitimacy of your rival, which and, and, we think is very dangerous for democracy.
0: And you mentioned it earlier. I just want to follow up. We'll, we'll get back to the two to more. But you mentioned it earlier, but would it also be fair that that sort of delegitimizing legitimize not having a hearing for Merrick Garland when the Constitution clearly says otherwise?
2: Well, again, we think it's a, it's a product of extreme polarization. When, when one side views the other side as an existential threat, as beyond the pale, it becomes more willing to pursue its goals by any means necessary, to not necessarily use restraint in in, in their action. And that whether it was the denial of Obama's legitimacy personally or whether it was the Republicans' belief that they had to sort of pursue their goals at all costs because uh, a Democratic-controlled Supreme Court would be beyond the pale, I guess I couldn't tell you. But, but they're closely related.
0: All right. Let's, uh, we're at number three. Toleration or... Encouragement of violence. Encouragement of violence. Oh, well, yeah, you guys know them better than I do. Why am I reading them out? Just go right ahead.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Steve, so to go ahead and describe <laughs> these, Yeah, yeah
2: a, a, lot of, a lot of democracies that, that, uh, that Daniel and I have studied have uh, died amidst a, in a climate of violence, often private or paramilitary violence, whether it's Italy in the 1920s, or Germany in the early 1930s, or Spain in the 30s, or in my part of the world, uh, Uruguay in the 60s and 70s, Argentina in the 70s, Brazil in the 1960s, prior to the breakdown of democracy, in the years prior to the breakdown of democracy, you see an increase of violence, whether it's terrorist groups or guerrillas, right-wing paramilitary groups, groups on all sides begin to sort of take Action in their own hands, often quite violently, and so uh, Juan Linz, who, who from whom we borrow quite a bit in this in this book and in this in set of indicators, adamantly argued that it was essential, absolutely essential, that politicians, that democratic politicians, always and everywhere condemn violence, whether it's their side or the other side or anybody. When anybody, even your allies, engages in acts of violence, you must condemn it. You must punish it. And so politicians who do not do that, who find ways to kind of justify acts of violence on their side, or who appear to uh, encourage or condone violence, are considered really quite dangerous for democracy. And and in our view, the kind of behavior that you saw uh, from Donald Trump on the campaign trail, in which in rallies he would openly advocate violence, uh, beating up protesters. Talk about the good old days when, when protesters were were carried out in a stretcher um, offering to pay the lawyers' fees for those who who engage in violence, and as well as as President Trump's um, shameful response in the presidency to the Charlottesville violence, um, that's pretty dangerous behavior. And again, unprecedented among major party candidates.
0: And number four is, I'm I'm not going to even bother reading it. I mean, come on.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Number four is uh, is a willingness to curtail the civil liberties of opponents, including the media. Uh, And here, where we're um, in the United States, what has what has emerged as a problem in the last couple of years is uh, is attacks on the press, Uh, a willingness Donald Trump, both in the campaign and as president, although he hasn't done this, has talked about using libel laws and other mechanisms to punish. Uh, media that uh, uh, that that's independent or, or critical, and um, you know, advocating stripping away the civil liberties of of, of opponents or the media, um, undermining the free press, is again a, a major threat to to democracy.
0: So, finally, I'm, I'm wondering, um, in this present space. One sees the title, How Democracies Die. And obviously, depending on their perspective, um, I can see how some might conclude that this is a political polemic, uh, against the current occupant of the White House. Uh, but the problems you cite are, 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 are much more entrenched. And, and I wonder, um, uh, any closing thoughts, any takeaways for people, um, who have yet to read, to read this, uh, must read book, in my view.
1: Yeah, well, we, you know, we, what we, we, what we try to do in the book is both identify the deeper problems in the American political system. I think there's few who disagree with the idea that the American political system is not operating as designed or as we expected or what as what we hope. And so the the question is to try to understand what's what's gone wrong and what's going wrong. Um, we make the so you know, and, and I think most would agree that hyperpolarization. The objective evidence suggests hyperpolarization is present in the United States, and this is a problem. You know, there may be disagreements about where this started. You know, we provide evidence, and we think there's the evidence is, is supports our position that this really began with the radicalization of the Republican Party, I mean, in the 1990s, as Steve has described. So you know, the process began there. But at some level, you know, people don't have to accept our uh, diagnosis of the history. The real question is, going forward, how do we get out of a kind of death spiral where each side views itself? is legitimate and the other side is not legitimate. And if we're in that death spiral moving forward, the real question is how do we get out of that? Um, and so what are the purpose of our book is to identify and then name and highlight the significance of this problem that we currently face. And so even if one disagrees with that particular historical component of our argument, the diagnosis, I think, uh, we hope, is something that everyone can, can take seriously.
0: Anything you want to add?
2: Steve uh, I think Daniel said it well I mean, what our, our hope is to is to make politicians and citizens more aware of the damage that can be done. Again we have spent too long taking our democracy for granted and even though our democratic institutions remain strong, even though there's a very good chance that we'll muddle through this, um, polit- the politicians who are engaging in, in this increasingly reckless behavior with regard to our institutions, have to be aware that um, our democracy, our institutions are not unbreakable. They are playing around with something that can be broken. And if our book can, can help raise awareness of that, um, it will be satisfying.
0: Harvard Professor Steve Levitsky and Daniel Zablat, thank you. Much appreciated you taking the time to be on the public morality today.
2: Thanks very much, Byron. Thanks for the great question.
0: That was Steve Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt, co-authors of how democracies die. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. For my closing remarks, my interview with Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Zablat does suggest that our democratic form of government is in jeopardy. Maybe not the Armageddon that some predict, but the uniqueness of the world's oldest democracy is, in some measure, at risk. We cannot pretend what we're witnessing is normal. We've weaponized and politicized hyperpartisanship. We're concerned largely with blaming the other side. The rhetoric of the major political parties appears to supersede commitment to our democratic values. In our current political climate, the democratic guardrails that Levisky and Ziblatt talked about at length in their book are reserved almost exclusively for our political opponents, while exceptions, qualifiers, and justifications for stepping beyond our democratic norms are conveniently provided for the side we support. Democracies require self-examination if they are to survive. If we cannot self-critique the political orthodoxy we align, we are part of the problem that moves the nation further away from that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at PublicMorality.org. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which is found on iTunes. You can also follow me on Twitter as well as Facebook. And due to a recent power outage, I would like to thank WFDD for their willingness to allow me to record this broadcast at their studios. I especially want to thank George Newman and David Ford at WFDD for their support. The Public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.